Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The word of God for the people of God. One scholar says about John chapter 6, it's a carefully crafted chapter. John chapter 6 is long. It's 71 verses. I would encourage you guys to go home at some point and just make your way through the entire chapter because it's all linked together. Remember, in the book of John, we oftentimes see Jesus having these very long discourses with people. He is a teacher par excellence. And John, more so than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, records these teachings of Jesus. And here in the book of John, we certainly see that. It's a carefully crafted chapter, and as N.T. Wright would say, nothing in John's gospel as a whole, but also in this chapter, is there by accident. The way that we've talked about this before in the past is there's no free motifs in the Bible. If something shows up in the story, it's going to be important later on. In the world of literary uh, criticism, this is called Chekhov's gun. If you're watching a play and in the second um, 
scene, you see a gun on a table, the gun must fire by the next act or the fact that it is there has no relevance whatsoever. The gospel authors are um, keen on the details that are in the story and they're shaping a certain narrative to get to a certain point about Jesus. This is a carefully crafted chapter. Nothing in John's gospel is there by accident. Wright continues, in fact, there is so much detail here, so many lines of thought, one might follow up that it can become bewildering. And as one who was attempting to teach through not just this, this 15 verse uh, feeding miracle, but the 71 verses of John chapter six. I have had my, my mind going to all sorts of connections all over the place because the way that John is telling this story is one who is completely surrounded by Jewish tradition and the stories of Jesus. And he's making connections to the past to try to teach us something about Jesus. We could spend years and years and years studying the gospel of John. Let's just thank ourselves right now that we are not going to do that. I'm trying to make some headway uh, through this book, but there is all sorts of details in this passage. In fact, if you just look at the 15 verses that we're studying this evening on the screen, I doubt that many of you can read that. Um, but John chapter six, the first 16, uh, the, fir the first 15 verses or so, if you could just see all of the links to the past, and I've highlighted those um, with an orangish reddish color. There's all sorts of preaching points that you could actually do a sermon on each one of those different passages. You could look right from the very beginning and think about the people that are following Jesus because they saw the signs that he had performed. Jesus in the book of John is, is going after these sorts of people wondering what sort of faith do they have? Is it a sign faith or is it an actual faith in the person of Jesus? Are they just following him to see a miracle, to see something cool happen? Or are they people that are investing their entire lives and their livelihood with following this homeless Jewish rabbi. This is some of the things that, that we could consider. We could also consider the fact that in John, Philip and Andrew are not only named participants in the story, but this is the only gospel in which they have a speaking part. For some reason, John thinks it's important to highlight Philip and Andrew and to see what types of people they are. In fact, one scholar would even say that the fact that Andrew is talking about the little boy who shows up with his five barley loaves and his two small fish, they would say that maybe Andrew was that guy of the 12. This is real speculation here, so don't, don't think about it too much. But he's the person in your friend group that when you go to the restaurant, he knows the waitress's name, he knows where she's going to school, he knows what she's doing with her life, he knows her, all of her, her problems and the things. That For me, this was Noel Habashi, and I don't know if you guys remember Noel, but he used to be a part of TRP a few years ago, and he was the nice person you'll ever meet in your entire life. He was Canadian. And he lived up to that stereotype. A Tim Hortons donut in one hand and really super nice uh, as, a, as a person. But he would, he would be that guy in the restaurant that would just know certain things about people. And when you went back, he would remember their name and their story and talk to them like they had had a good interchange. It was mind-blowing. It sounds so stupid, doesn't it? But, you know, when we're at the restaurant, I, a lot of people are just, like, trying to figure out what we're, what we're going to, to eat. 
Dad is, is good for this because if we're 15 miles away from the drive-thru that we're going through, Dad will start saying, all right, what's everybody want? Gotta know it, gotta know it ahead of time. I don't wanna be there and have something pop up on me. I need to know what's going on right now, 35 minutes before we get to the drive-thru. That's, that, Dad's not getting anybody's name at the restaurant, you know? But some people have said maybe Andrew is that person who's engaged in the lives of the people that are around. And when even a small boy shows up, Andrew starts talking to him and befriending him and asking about what's going on and knows what this kid has in his lunch sack. You know what I mean? That's all speculation. Nobody knows what's going on there, but you could launch off into some of these stories. And in fact, I think it would be important for us just to look at one detail kind of surrounding what we've just been talking about here. And this one's gonna be a stretch, okay? I need your game faces on for the next seven minutes. Can you be with me for the next seven minutes? Because we've got some, some difficult uh, things to to get across, okay? Just connecting dots, all right? But I wanna look just here for a moment at this, um, this phrase here, a boy. And it's, it's meaning in the book of John and in this story. As N.T. Wright says, there's no free motifs here. Now, I didn't check my font, so I don't know if this is gonna work. Ha, here it is. In the book of John, the word that is used here to describe this boy who has the five loaves and the, and the two small dried fish is um, paidarion. It's the only time this word is used in the gospel of John. This is the only time this word is used in the gospel of John. There are no free motifs. And this is the only time this word shows up in the gospel of John. You guys are looking at me like, who cares? Because what the author is doing is maybe bringing a certain uh, resonance of a former story back into play. Remember, these folks were not like you and I. They were not reading their version apps and their, their daily Bible plans. These people knew scripture well. They were inundated with the stories of their faith. They would have known certain connections and points of connection, not only because they were closer to Old Testament history than we are, but also because they understood these passages. This, were, this was their life, in a sense. These were the stories of their faith. This is what they knew. And John is looking back to a certain story in the Old Testament that we might not even be aware of that it's in there. It comes from the book of 2 Kings in chapter 4. 2 Kings tells the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the prophet par excellence, and Elijah has this really strange story. He's got an apprentice named Elisha, and Elijah is taken off into a chariot of fire. Before that happens, Elisha requests a double portion of blessing from Elijah, and Elijah says, if you see me being taken up, then you can have that. We have this whole moment where there's this passing of the mantle between Elijah, the prophet par excellence, to Elisha, the up-and-coming prophet. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, we get some of the beginning stories of Elisha and his ministry. And towards the end, we have a story that looks very similar to Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. It says, a man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread. The man of God there is Elisha. He brings him 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain. Some people have posited that a barley bread is cheaper than a wheat bread. So some people have said that this is a, is a beggar's meal. I don't know if you can go that far with it, but just leave that in the back of your head and 
Maybe that'll come back to you at some point. But he's got 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. And Elisha says, give it to the people to eat. Now, at this point, we don't know how many people are there, but we're going to get some of that information here. He says, how can I set this before a hundred men? How can I feed a hundred people with 20 loaves of barley bread, Elisha? That doesn't make any sense. This question is being asked from Elisha's servant, who is known as Gehazi. So Gehazi is saying, how can I set this before a hundred men? Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. And he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. All good? Now remember, in the Gospel of John, the only time the word paidarion shows up is in this story of the feeding of the 5,000. And don't you know that throughout 2 Kings chapter 4, Gehazi is known as what? Throughout the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. He is known as none other than Pidarion. He is known as this servant type. This is a word that is invested in 2 Kings chapter 4, just a bit of history. The Old Testament, largely written in Hebrew, but throughout the time, there was different lingua francas of the day, different known languages that became the dominant languages. So at some point, Hebrew became outdated, and the text was then translated into Aramaic. The text was also translated into Greek at some point so that people could know the scriptures and read the scriptures. What's really interesting about this is the New Testament authors, the books that they use, the books that they're dependent upon for their stories of the past, it's probably not the Hebrew. It's probably not the Aramaic. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is quoted more often than not in the New Testament. God saw fit that the authors of the New Testament would use a translation of the word of God. Now, what we see here in this passage is, I got so excited I lost my clicker. Here it is. In this passage, Gehazi is known as a Pyderion, and uh, this is the same word that is used in the book of John, and it's almost as if they're linking these stories together. There was this episode in 2 Kings chapter 4 when Elisha, the prophet par excellence, feeds 100 people with 20 loaves of barley bread. And there's a tie between these stories linguistically because the author of the book of John is looking back and using the same word to link these two things together. But what we see here is that it goes be much beyond what we're seeing in this passage. Jesus is not just feeding 100 people with 20 loaves. Jesus is feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Now, this is at least it seems as though it's not just happenstance because throughout the Gospels, we see these differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in this story in particular, the way that John is told is completely dissimilar to these other stories. One scholar says this, there's five main elements in the narrative of this uh, passage that we're looking at. The question comes from the disciples in Mark chapter six, but it comes from Jesus in John chapter six. In other words, the question of what are we going to do with these people? 
They've been following us. They're hungry. They need some food. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that comes from the disciples. The disciples are the ones that say, we have to do something about this. But in the book of John, it's Jesus that says, what are we going to do about this? He's specifically asking Philip, and it says that he's specifically asking Philip to not to trick him, but to test him, to see if he understands what is going on. So the, 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 the person who's asking the questions, it shifts. Also, the food, it comes from the disciples in Mark chapter 6, but from a lad, from a small boy, from a paidarion in John chapter 6. There is no um, boy in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The boy only shows up in John He goes on, the preparation comes from Jesus directly in Mark chapter 6, but from Jesus through the disciples in John 6, 10. This is where um, the people are are aligning them into groups of 50s or groups of 100s. Some people would say this is army talk. So if you have this large group of people, you'd put people into their, um, their groups. Some people have said this is like John's eschatological army. That sounds real cool, doesn't it? It's probably not what's going on, but they're just arranging people into specific groups so that they can feed them better. And actually, this isn't that big of a, of a deal, but there's two more uh, differences. The distribution comes from Jesus through the disciples in Mark chapter 6. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is dealing with this thing where he says, listen, I'm empowering you as my disciples to go out, to, to cast out demons, to feed people to heal people. I'm empowering you to go. So when the people come and say, Jesus, what are we going to do about this problem that's out here in the fields, this problem of hunger? Jesus says, feed them. Jesus says, you guys do it. You guys go out and do the work. But in John, it switches. Jesus is the one who takes care of this. And in fact, Jesus becomes the host in this first century meal. Remember, he's blessing the bread. He's breaking the bread. He's distributing the bread. He becomes the host of this dinner party, if you will. Jesus is taking on a new role in John's version of the story. And then the collection of fragments comes through an unidentified they in Mark 6, 43, but from Jesus through the disciples in John 6, 12, when he says, go pick up all of what is left over. And in John, he actually says, go pick up what's left over because I don't want any crumb to be unaccounted for. I want it all to be gathered. I want it all to be safe. Later in this chapter, Jesus says that the father has um, given him the role and responsibility to gather all of his people together. And we see hints of that here in how he's dealing with the leftovers. He's gathering them all together and not one little crumb should be unaccounted for. I say this all to say that John is shaping his version of the story. He's taking specific um, motifs. He's taking specific ideas and then bringing them all together, crafting this story to teach his people something about Jesus. Because for John, it's usually about Jesus. Pete N. says the gospel writers were adapting and shaping the relatively recent history of Jesus of Nazareth, even freely editing the work of others in order to present Jesus meaningfully to their communities of faith. So I'm over here dancing around about Pidarion 
and how the book of John seems to be making links to the Old Testament. And it actually has some credence because what John wants to do is say there's a link between Jesus and Elijah and Elisha. There's a link between Jesus and the prophets of old. In fact, what Jesus is doing is better than these people. It's the abundance of the miracle that we see. For Elisha, it was just a hundred people with 20 loaves of bread. That's cool. But Jesus completely destroys that in terms of abundance because he's feeding 5,000 men. It doesn't even count the women and the children. He's giving them an abundance of food off of a scarcity of food that is available to him, so much so that they have basket upon basket upon basket of leftovers. There's an abundance that's happening here that Jesus is providing for the people. Remember that slide with all of the, the red on it and the, the different sermons that could be taught? I think that this is one that's embedded in here. The abundance that is available through Jesus. I don't think that that means necessarily that your bills are getting paid and that you're going to have ample amounts of food on the table necessarily. But when Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give you life abundantly, I think that there's some truth there for us to consider what that means for us when we do follow Jesus. There's an abundance of this miracle and Jesus becomes the better Elijah or Elisha just through this link in this one word. And remember, this isn't the only reading of this story. This is just one reading of this story. There's no details that aren't importantly placed in here by the author. And it's important for us to see this. John's point is often Christological, meaning John's point is often about Jesus. It's to tell us who Jesus is, to tell us what he's about, to tell us what he uh, has for us, to tell us what his role is, to tell us what he has accomplished for us. And we've seen this throughout our study of the book already. Jesus becomes wisdom in chapter one. There's this Old Testament motif where wisdom is present with God when God is creating. And in John chapter one, Jesus is the agent who is with God during creation. Jesus is, for an ancient audience, Jesus is wisdom, but Jesus is more than wisdom. In the same passage, Jesus is the temple. It says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word there can be used for the, the word is tabernacling with these people. In the Old Testament, God's presence was located in the tabernacle and in the temple. And John is saying quite clearly that Jesus is now the embodied presence of God who is not located in a tabernacle or in a temple, but Jesus is the very embodiment, the very presence of God on earth who is ministering to his people. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is the temple. Jesus becomes Jacob's ladder in this weird story where he's talking to Philip and Nathaniel. And it says, you will see these great things. You will see the angels ascending and descending upon me. And he's looking back to this Old Testament story where Jacob falls asleep and he has this dream of a ladder and angels, messengers of God, ascending and descending. It's as if there's a portal between heaven 
and earth. And Jesus in this story says that he becomes Jacob's ladder. He becomes the portal. He becomes the access point of heaven and earth. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the access point between heaven and earth. Jesus becomes Jacob's well when he's having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, asking her to, to draw up living water as Jesus can give this living water to her. Jesus is something better. And now Jesus in this story where he's feeding folks is the bread in the wilderness. Again, looking back to an Old Testament story where Jesus uh, or where, where the people of Israel were out in the wilderness without food and they cried out and God provided them with food. He provided them with manna after they had left Egyptian servitude and slavery in the Exodus and they end up in the wilderness and they need sustenance and God provides it for him. And in this passage, after Jesus has completely supplied for the abundance of, of the people. He says things like this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Then he goes on to talk about his bread as, as flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And finally, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors, they ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. John is making all of these comparisons to teach us who Jesus is. Jesus in the past has been wisdom. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is Jacob's well. Now Jesus is the bread of life that comes down from heaven for the sake of the people. This miracle is not just one where he is attempting to provide for the physical, tangible needs of the people. He's also demonstrating something about himself here where he goes beyond that to say, I have something that's better than bread for you. If you believe in me, I will give you life. For the author of the Gospel of John, all of these hints of the Old Testament are coming to fruition. And there's just one more um, hook that we see here in this passage. Unlike Matthew and Mark and Luke, John makes it explicit, the timing of this story. In verse 4, it says that the Jewish Passover festival was near. And in the minds of the people, as they're contemplating the Passover, they would go back to this climactic story of Israel under the oppression of Egypt and the freedom that they would experience through Moses and the wilderness period where they would walk aimlessly waiting for God to take them to the promised land. This time when they needed sustenance and they needed food and God provided it for them and all of these hooks seem to bring us to this moment where Jesus announces that he is the bread of life. My hope this evening is that when we encounter these stories, that we don't just immediately go to, did it happen, did it not happen? My hope is that we will see the, the theology that is underlying these stories to see what is true about Jesus. And all throughout the Gospel of John, the author is attempting to tell us something new and fresh about who Jesus is. 
Throughout this story, the author is at pains to communicate a truth about Jesus to his audience. And now here, I guess, is where I'd like to to leave us this evening. We also have our ideas and our conceptions about who Jesus is. Sometimes they're fueled by the stories of our faith. Sometimes they're fueled by our experiences. Sometimes they're fueled by the questions that we have. But when John is at pains to tell us that God is sending his son, Jesus, to become the better Elijah, the better temple, the better, and in fact, the, the, the beautiful presence of God on earth with his people, I'm hopeful that we can also accept that for ourselves this evening and that we can inform our lives by those truths. Not just that we leave them in this space, not just that they're academic, not just that we geek out on Greek terms and how authors are are pinning stories together, but how Jesus, as the one who offers bread that will sustain, is one who transforms us each and every day. My hope is that when we see these stories, we get a glimpse not only of the past, but we get a glimpse of the Savior that we follow right here and right now. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash RestoreSBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.